thank you for joining me for another episode. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and this is Nature Revisited. Not everyone has the same access to nature. For a long time now, I have been wanting to do an episode that takes a closer look at the African-American experience with nature. Our history as a nation has seen a long struggle with the issue of race, from social injustice, criminal injustice, and economic injustice. And more recently, the environmental movement has been raising the awareness of vulnerable populations when it comes to environmental racism and justice. Over the years, we have given a lot of resources to help develop and save our natural wild places. Now, we really do need to apply the same attention and resources to our more urban environments. It was James Fapel, the urban ecologist, who suggested that I read the powerful essay, Black Landscapes Matter, by Kofi Boone. Even before I finished reading the essay, I was emailing Kofi to see if he would do an interview for Nature Revisited. Kofi Boone is a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects, a professor of landscape architecture and environmental planning at North Carolina State University, and the author of numerous articles on why landscapes matter. So I asked Kofi if he would share his unique perspective as an African-American landscape architect, trying to create healthier environments for millions of people who have little or no real access to nature or the natural world. Carolina? Uh, they're doing okay. You know, the election has all of our attention. It's been a busy couple of weeks, a lot of anxiety, but I think we're moving forward, so I think we're doing okay. Yeah, I, I think America just had a big sigh of relief. Feels that way. Yeah. It does. Can we go back a little bit to where you're from, and how did you kind of get involved in nature at a young age? Yeah, I'm from Detroit, Michigan. Grew up on the east side of Detroit. You know, had sort of typical experience where I lived. On the east side was within biking distance of Belle Isle Park, uh, which is a island park that was designed by Frederick Olmsted, among others. And so that was sort of our chance to get out away from the city and, and enjoy a little bit of nature and a river view. And so, you know, we do that informally. I don't know if that bred a love of nature or not. I do know that my parents were really intentional about taking us out. Metro Park's on the edge of the city. Detroit's right across the river from Canada. We'd go over to Windsor and go to parks over there. And so, you know, that was all a part of it. But my mother and my grandfather are both artists. And so my mother has a BFA 
my grandfather was self-taught, so we grew up in an art household, too. So we used to draw all the time, paint, and got that experience in nature. I think in terms of nature, when it really clicked for me was high school. I wanted to be a professional musician in high school. I got into a school called Interlochen Arts Academy, which is in northern Michigan. And it's between two huge state parks. It's in the middle of, I don't want to say nowhere, but it's pretty far from a lot of... Uh, urban life. And so while I was there studying music, got a chance to walk the trails, enjoy the lakes. And I had a teacher who was taking us on a, a math science camping trip. There were a number of students that were selected to go off to North Manitou Island with their teachers. And so a ferry would drop you off and you'd be there for three to four days with nothing but you and whatever you could carry. It was really at that moment, I kind of went, well, you know, I have a lot of love of music and art and creativity and that part of the world, but it turns out that I really like nature as well and wanted to know more about it. That's really, I think, when I consciously started to put things together, that there was uh, there was something else other than what I was used to in my day-to-day environment. So when did you decide that you wanted to be a landscape architect? Well, it was in high school. Coming off of, you know, these math science camping trips, start asking questions of the science teacher that he was teaching in the ecology class when we were in high school. And I was like, so what's this all about? And so I got invited to visit the University of Michigan by the math department. I went for a university visit. And while I was there, math professor asked, well, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, you know, I want to do something that combines art and nature. He was disappointed and sad about that because he was hoping I was going to say math. My parents were a little bit disappointed because, you know, at that time I was really focused on music and they were hoping I would say I want to do music. The professor took me over to the College of Natural Resources to talk to the guidance counselor, this woman named Sandy Gergerman. Sandy goes, well, yeah, there's this whole thing called landscape architecture. The chair of the department is on sabbatical, but if you leave your information, he'll call you when he gets back. And we all kind of went, nah, he's not going to call anybody. But he did. That uh, was uh, Ken Polakowski, who was the chair at Michigan. He was on sabbatical in Australia at the time when I was visiting. As soon as he got back, he called and met with him, and he laid out landscape architecture and offered me a summer internship, working with him on some of his research. He really just sort of laid it all out and talked about the profession and why he thought that was a good fit for it. So it was really very aggressive mentoring. And, uh, one of still my mentors today, you know, as many years ago, uh, Kim Polakowski. I'm going to assume it was pretty obvious that you were going into something that not too many African-Americans were involved in. Yeah, you know, and, you know, this is sort of a, an important point is that there's almost no accredited profession where there are lots of African-Americans. So there are some where there's a longer tradition. There's some where their organizations. And so it's true that even at that time, it was obvious that most of the people I was going to be dealing with in the classroom or in the professional space were not going to look like me. That being said, I was at that time less focused on that and more focused on, wow, this is a way to do what I feel like I want to do, like what I was passionate about. And so it would be dealing with those challenges as they came. I don't think as a high school kid that I was really cognizant or aware of sort of the whole global kind of issue with it. What were some of those ideas or motivations that you had in a high school? What? Yeah, I mean, at that time, I didn't know. You know, I think that it was generally that I thought that really was 
a place to be creative in an artistic way and to be creative with the environment. And I know that those two general areas were things that I was really interested in now. Did I know the difference between, say, an urban design thing or community design or uh, conservation or greenways and trails? No, I had no idea. But but that idea of just broadly of, hey, I can be creative uh, in the built environment, that's something that was the first draw. Now, the second one was there was a lot of reflection on uh, the disparities between different communities in different places. And so even reflecting on my experience in Detroit, once I had a chance to get away from the city and see other places and see, wow, you know, this is what parks and trails look like. You know, this is what it means when there's landscape available for everybody and there's safe places to play. And, you know, and then I reflect on my own environment and I'm thinking about well, why can't where I was from enjoy the same benefits as other places, particularly with the landscape and with the built environment. And it was really in college that I got to understand the vocabulary of environmental justice because Michigan at that time, and I think still has one of the strongest uh, programs in environmental justice in the country. And so uh, that there were real patterns that had to do with race, had to do with class, had to do with the history of this particular country uh, that put people in different positions. And so it was really that connection in terms of a reflection on my lived experience and combined with that scholarship to understand that landscape architecture was more than just me having fun creating beautiful things in the environment, that there was actually some social mission to it. And I think once that connection was made, it was off to the races. If you could kind of address how you see that has has been and its unique importance to the African-American community. Yeah, you know, you know, I'd say that there are different experiences based on where you're from and what your position is. You know, I have have people from all over the diaspora in my family. I have people who were immigrants from West Africa. I have people who are immigrants from the Caribbean. My mother and my father's side are primarily descended from enslaved African people. So there is evidence of, of African people having contact with indigenous people in the United States before European colonialism. For the majority of us, you know, our first tie to this country is through uh, enslavement. The idea that African people were brought here as free labor, built wealth in this country, and from an indigenous people's point of view, on stolen land. Free labor on stolen land is sort of the, the beginning of this whole conversation. Even though enslaved African people were brought and stolen uh, to come to the United States, that they came with skills and they came with an attitude about the environment that they cultivated wherever they were from. You know, what I've written about, what others have written about is, you know, how integral that African knowledge was so that literally came from specifically selecting uh, people from the African continent who had those skills. So that whole perception of sort of big dumb brutes and labor and unthinking and learning all these things once they got here, this isn't true. Even within that, there's evidence of African people doing the best they can to establish their own uh, spaces that are based on their own rules and their own way of thinking about things. There's a lot of writing about uh, yards and uh, common places, other things where they could exchange food and tell stories and speak their native language and you know worship and do all the things that you need for humanity, even under really brutal conditions of slavery. In terms of the long arc of landscape and environmental connections, yes, there are lots of stories. I'll tell one. Uh, where I'm in North Carolina, some of the earliest wealth in our state was really tied to uh, longleaf pine, harvesting longleaf pine, the uh, 
the trunks for ship's masts, the, the tar to kind of seal ships and make them weatherproof. That's why it's called the Tar Heel State. African people were really essential to all those things, right? So enslaved African people did a lot of that labor. However, they were also, you know, using their cultural knowledge of plants, medicinal plants, healing herbs. They were reading that local landscape to understand that this bark is good for this, this root is good for that, these leaves are good for that. They were excluded from traditional medicine. They were excluded from traditional treatment. And so parallel to this whole environment, there are all these examples of of African people going out into nature, even discovering a new sort of ecosystem and testing and understanding and using methods to provide their basic needs from the land. So between that, between rice, there's so many stories from all over. It's not 100%, you know, oppression, brutality, you know, I hate working the land. There's also evidence of people really adapting to this new place and finding new ways to deal with it. But in a contemporary sense, like when you deal with the 19th and 20th century, where very oppressive laws that controlled your movement, black codes, Jim Crow laws, sundown towns, this this incredible control of movement, you know, made being outside, being in public, you're at risk, particularly around white folks, particularly in the South. There was always this sort of double kind of situation of people reaching out, finding ways to continue their lives, but also in the context of incredible uh, odds uh, along the way. Would you say that like most people, the African-American community is at present kind of disconnected from nature? I would say yes and no. I'm going to ask you, what do you mean by disconnected from nature? Well, you know, as someone who lives in New England and is, you know, I garden and I have a real deep love for nature, I look at our country and the world and I see that we're really heading in the wrong direction and that one of the reasons we're heading in that wrong direction is that we're we're disconnected. We don't have a personal attachment to nature. I mean, we are nature, but we don't live as if we are. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot to it. I mean, I think, you know, great memories of exploring in the woods or playing in the dirt or playing in a creek or working the land like that has a lasting lifetime sort of set of benefits. But the lack of access to that at that time period has a, a lasting set of challenges. You know, the reason why I'm pausing is that the definition of nature and definition of environment is, is on the table as well, which is to say a lot of people think about environment and nature as the unbuilt part of the world, places where human beings haven't had big footprint, big impact. You know, there's no roads, there's no buildings, things. And that's one way of viewing nature and the environment. But, you know, 21st century is really about there really isn't a part of the Earth's surface that humans have not impacted. So the whole Earth, in a way, now is sort of nature, including the urban systems and the urban environments that we live in. And that's been one of the challenges that the environmental justice movement has put on the table regarding redefining nature to not exclude urban environments, not to exclude the areas that are human-dominant, that that's a part of nature, too, and that those places need to function and operate better transform and not just uh, focus on the unbuilt places. So the reason why I'm, I'm putting it in that context is to say that if we think about how urban environments are not separate from nature in our contemporary way of understanding it, then we're all engaged in nature. And it's just a matter of finding those moments when we can focus and, and target and connect and not relegate those to when we can get outside of cities, outside of urban environments, because it's just not how it works anymore. 
it's a broad, broad topic, but I think that the first part is the definition of nature and defining nature as places where a lot of black and brown people are versus where all these places are that supposedly have all this nature value. So, you know, the National Park Service, and they were celebrating their anniversary a couple of years ago, and they were trying to break down some barriers to get more black and brown folks to national parks and to heritage sites and to other places. They have rates of visitation by people of color and black folks that are less than our representation in landscape architecture. And why would that be? Well, some ways they're really hard to get to. They're far away. Once you get there, they're expensive to stay at. So embedded in a lot of how we encourage people to engage with nature are a lot of economic and cultural costs that we don't account for that can explain why some groups of folks, it's no problem. Hey, let's go. Let's do it. Some groups of folks are like, no, I'm not doing that. What we choose to define as nature is like the next kind of piece. So we don't invest heavily. Actually, we've We've divested from urban parks, from places that are closer to where African-American, black and brown people live over the last 30 years, you know, and relied on either philanthropy or nonprofits or other organizations to kind of fill the gaps. So city park systems, state park systems, county park systems, uh, efforts to restore environmental features in the neighborhoods where people live, uh, we pull away from that. And so, you know, those are two dynamics. There are legacies that are generational in terms of perception of safety in certain public spaces. Uh, came to a head, you know, in the past year, you know, you have the, the bird watcher in, in Central Park. The white woman calls the police on because she feels threatened. You have people who are being chased and harassed in forest lands in Kentucky based on the color of their skin. Spaces are not for you, and that the laws that bind us all together are not, they don't apply when we get into wilderness areas. There's still people who harbor that fear and that perception of going out into places unprotected, undefended in the midst of certain parts of our population, particularly poor white people. So there are a lot of layers to the question that you're asking in terms of that perception that are at play, but I think at root is. We have not successfully engaged black and brown communities in defining what they think nature and environment is such that we can look at what needs to be accommodated. It is an issue of it being close to where you are. It is an issue of the programs and uses that we need to encourage. Is it a matter of how we tell the story? Is it a matter of safety and laws and policies such that you feel safe going to these places? Is this an economic barrier? You know, there's just a lot of questions. And so I think that conversation is something that has not occurred, and that is something that needs to occur in order to really figure it out. A lot of other groups have had those conversations of figuring out, you know, this is what it means for us, therefore this is where we're going to go, and this is what it needs to accommodate, and in order to make that happen, these are the resources we need. We haven't had that conversation uh, uh, in terms of black community yet. Can we talk a little bit now about environmental racism? Sure. And what are some of the ways that it manifests itself. It's probably helpful to talk about one of the early cases that coined that term and then couch it. So environmental racism is now known as environmental justice, but environmental racism was a situation that was identified through a report that was released in 1982. And it was really out of a struggle that happened in North Carolina, Warren County, uh, where the state of North Carolina was engaged in siting a landfill for PCBs. 
the companies that were looking for a location to store all these sort of toxic chemicals used a racial and political analysis to identify communities that were least offended or communities that were least aware or communities that really will put up the least amount of resistance. And so they specifically chose very low-income, predominantly black community because they felt that was the path of least resistance. Like they didn't have as many political ties or as much many economic ties or much education about, you know, what the, what this, what the fear of this was. And this is after other communities had resisted that were predominantly white in the same particular area. And they were wondering if that was the only situation where that was true, like this little small county in North Carolina. And so the study from United Church of Christ started to identify this pattern across the country of the siting of toxic waste, landfills, the rooting of freeways, anything that's seen as a noxious use. And so they found across the country, when they looked at these sort of, at that time, toxic and noxious uses, that the highest predictor of one's proximity to these things was race. Above income, above education level, above all that stuff. So that correlation, that pattern of citing environmental beds with black and brown communities, particularly low wealth, was identified as a pattern of environmental racism. And that led to sort of the beginnings of the environmental justice movement. Where I used to live in Detroit, I-75, well-documented freeway to uh, destroy what was then known as the Black Bottom community. And so it's grown up into a broader movement now, where it's also an advocacy for environmental benefits, the lack of access to parks and green space, the lack of access to fresh and healthy foods, the lack of access to other by this information, and it's actually grown up into climate justice. Climate change will disproportionately affect black and brown people, and that is a component of issues of environmental justice as well, grown up into climate justice. So, you know, there are, there are steps along the way, but the, the shortest explanation I can give you, it was born from this realization that race, particularly in America, has an impact on one's political mobility and, and power and efficacy, economic mobility, power and efficacy, geography, you know, in terms of where black and brown people live. And whenever there are decisions that will radically alter that environment, they are the least able to resist. Uh, the Mississippi Delta is a great example of this in terms of what's known as Cancer Alley where in the 70s and 80s when the state of Mississippi relaxed a lot of environmental regulations in order to attract reinvestment, Dow Chemical and a number of companies moved there and no environmental oversight. It's the assumption that these communities would not resist, resulting in real crises like lower life expectancy, high infant mortality, cognitive development issues. So it's a pervasive pattern, and it's uncomfortable for some people to hear that it's tied to race, but there's there's so much data correlating it that it's uh, it's almost indefeatable right now. So there again, this is the next question. It's kind of broad, but why do black landscapes matter? I'll say that if I told you a history of landscape architecture, and I decided to tell you that the whole scope of what landscape architecture is, was all on the continent of Africa. And we didn't talk about France and the Palace of Versailles. We didn't talk about Birkenshead Park in England. We didn't talk about Zen Gardens in Japan. We didn't talk about the Alhambra in Spain. You'd scratch your head. You'd say, how could you exclude 
other ways that people decided to build and deal with their landscapes. If you pick up any landscape history book mainstream, when you go through that example, there is no reference to anyone of African descent. Part of it is about the framing of what we think of as landscape architecture and what we think of as landscapes communicates to others how inclusive or exclusive it is. Whether or not you can see yourself in a profession or in a story about a profession matters to whether or not people think that it's useful to their particular communities. Right? One reason why black landscapes matter is because white landscapes matter and other landscapes matter. There are several layers to why they matter, but the first layer, which is important, is that the story that we've told about landscape has not included significantly the culture of black people, African-Americans, uh, as a part of that story. It's always an appendage, an extra, an add-on, a leftover. But the way that we've told the story, the way that we've identified cases that we celebrate, the way that we teach the story, the way we communicate with communities about the value of what we do has been extremely exclusive, a very narrow band of what landscape architecture is and doesn't include the lived experiences, particularly of the people that we need to serve. Changing diversity of our country and the global diversity of the profession, interests of meeting the needs of this rapidly diversifying population means identifying places, people, concepts that are outside of that mainstream that can connect with the communities that we have to serve and provide better solutions. It's important to have places where people can get in touch with the process. When we usually think about landscape architecture or design or gardens, we have this ideal image in our head of the mature garden or the mature landscape in a permanent state that's fixed, right? Doesn't change. You could go there 30 years later, exactly the same. That is not how wildness works. That's not how ecological process works. In order to get that to happen, you have to suppress those changes from happening, right? You have to continually disrupt them to kind of get them back in a moment in time. And so striking this balance of areas that do need to be permanent in order for certain uses to occur but places that really would benefit from being dynamic, changing, growing, dealing with the seasons, dealing with the years, you know, providing all of these other benefits is really important. So do you see that things are starting to change? I think it depends on where you are and, and who's working on it. Yes, I think that in other parts of the world, they've been changed for a long period of time. I think that in the American context, it's regional. This is where you are in the Northeast, uh, the Pacific Northwest, the West Coast, there are many places where that's intentionally happening, where people are looking at it at all levels, policy level, planning level, design level, implementation level, maintenance level, education and programming level. Like there, people are thinking comprehensively about how that happens. I think where we are in the Southeast, it's a struggle because in a lot of ways, we're still dealing with the boom, the growth boom, of uh, the Sunbelt states, and there's a perception from a policy standpoint where we are, where anything that's perceived as a restriction or a constriction on growth is, is bad. And so we're fighting it from a policy standpoint of saying ecologically, environmentally, preserving, protecting, connecting, uh, integrating into the things that we're doing is important. It's happening in, in, in pieces, but it's not a coordinated piece. So I think it's regional where we are. I think there are regions that are doing better than others at this. I'm definitely hopeful for the future, for sure. You know, what I tell my students is that I started grad school when, you know, landscape architecture offices were closing because there wasn't any work. 
by the time we graduated, that's when the economy started kicking in again. That's when there were a lot of changes made to correct during that recession that produced a very different way of practicing when we graduated. And I think we're in the same boat now. There's been a lot of people that have been trying to move forward on important issues framing the 21st century. And the idea of rethinking the experiences where people actually are and thinking about how nature can work and operate to help people where they actually live and not just always relegating it to places far away from the cities. Those are all things that people were talking about before, but they're actually moving on and acting on now. And so I think people coming out of this era, particularly students, uh, can look forward to probably the most coordinated conversation between organizations, institutions, tied to landscape architecture in particular, about these particular issues. And so uh, I'm excited about my students because very few of them selected to get into landscape architecture for for issues that we would consider tangentials. But they have very strong social conscience. They have very strong passion to actually make a difference in the world through the built environment, see, you know, working in this realm as an active realm and wanting to be active players in it. Uh, they're really hungry for that opportunity to do that. And so they're already starting with a leg up, like they're beyond where I was when I started. And it comes out in their work. So, you know, this year we weren't able to have our uh, ASLA, American Society of Landscape Architects, national meeting due to COVID, but there's an awards program. So they recognize students, they recognize professionals. Uh, we won a professional award this year for our work, Hurricane Disaster Recovery in Lumberton, North Carolina, won an award for an honor award in analysis and planning for the work that we did with that. But our students won awards, one researching the impact of the peat and wetland systems in sequestering carbon and maintaining cultural ties to the landscape. Another for disaster recovery plan for a community on the water uh, dealing with sea level rise and so the creative integration of parks and natural systems to deal with protection from flood and uh, storm surge through design and being able to even measure the potential benefits of it. So those two came from students and were recognized nationally. And, you know, in the midst of all of the struggles that we're facing, people are still finding ways to persevere, still finding ways to communicate their vision, that they're going to be well-equipped to handle the issues we're going to be facing for the rest of the century. If people are interested in learning more, there are a number of resources out there that are available to them. For people who don't know what landscape architecture is, the organization is the American Society of Landscape Architects. It's our professional organization. The website is excellent in terms of introducing the profession. There are a lot more resources out there for people who have a social and environmental conscience. There are a lot of places for people to go to get more information about what we discuss. enjoyed my conversation with Kofi Boone and that you take the time to read his wonderful essay, Black Landscapes Matter. If you are interested in the urban landscape, might I suggest that you would enjoy episode 16, The Experience of Place with Mitchell Silver. And I hope you will share Nature Revisited with friends, family, and colleagues and subscribe to Nature Revisited on your favorite podcast server. You can also follow us 
on Instagram, YouTube, or our website, NordenProductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N Productions.com. If you would like to share your thoughts or comments, please send them to us through our website contact page, and we will share them on our Instagram page. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. Nature.